Welcome to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. As ever on this week's show, we're going to be looking at the latest voting intention opinion polls to check the political weather in Westminster as we all bask in the glorious weather in the UK this week. How long that will last is anybody's guess. We're going to be unveiling a new exclusive Polling Matters opinion survey on the recent military action in Syria. Hotly contested, of course, but what do the public think? And we'll also make time to look into the recent Lord's report on the future, on the future of opinion polling. Very important to this podcast, we'll be looking at what the Lord's uh, report said and what that might mean for how polls are used in the future. And if we have time, which I'm sure we will, we'll be looking a little bit at uh, some other numbers on Windrush, but also the local elections that are fast approaching and what we should look for when those um, results come out. So to join me on this week's podcast, we are not unfortunately joined by Leo Barassi this week, but we've got we've had to replace him with two people because uh, you know, one is not enough. We have Adam Drummond from Opinion and Matt Singh from Number Crunch of Politics. Welcome back, gents. Um, let's, uh, let's kick off with uh, the sort of latest trends in voting intention. The listeners will be uh, sick of me talking about this. I'm, I'm keen to get both of your expert views on what's going on. I mean, Adam, um, it does seem like there's been a shift of sorts back towards the government in recent weeks, doesn't it? Well, I, th- I think it's almost the opposite because it, it seems like we had a shift towards the government after uh, you know, the, the Salisbury attack and there was some sort of rally around the flag effect there where we saw the Tories pulling ahead by a couple of points. Um, but then looking at recent results, everything seems to have gone back to a dead heat almost. So that seems to have dissipated away and we're back to where we were when we started and where we have been for most of you know, the last year or so, almost since the election. I mean, Matt, it feels like it's, um, as Adam says, some churn, but the fundamental picture always seems to reset back to neck and neck. Yeah, I mean, it depends what your reference point is. I mean, if you're comparing to, say, February, when I think most people had sort of uh, three or four point, or certainly a, a, a Labour lead of uh, some description, there has been a, a shift since then. But obviously there was this period around the end of March, early April, particularly when the anti-Semitism morale within Labour was quite uh, dominant within the, the headlines and quite a few, I mean, I think quite a few people polled then and, and you started seeing this um, three, four-point Labour lead from, from multiple um, pollsters. And in fact, our poll got a, with most of the fieldwork done at that point, got a, a five-point Tory lead. But then since then there's been... So, so for those that haven't, aren't aware of this, this is the first number crunch of politics poll. It is indeed, yes. Um, so this is, uh, we can talk a bit about... Um, polling, uh, the way polling is changing later. But yes, this is the uh, first poll from us and um, it's, a, it's a slightly new methodology, which I'll um, come on to later. But uh, yes, that did produce a five-point Tory lead at a, 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 a similar time as people were showing similar numbers. Uh, but then since then, others have the polls that have come since then have shown a shift back towards neck and neck mm. from people who were showing Tory leads a couple of weeks ago. So, as Adam said, there's kind of been the shift in the other direction. It really depends what your reference point is, but um, overall, the trends since earlier in the year is a swing towards the Tories. Yeah, I mean, let's let's, let's put some numbers to that for people that maybe aren't following it too closely. So, let, let's take some uh, of the most recent polls. I mean, Adam, Opinion have had Conservatives 40, Labour 40, which is a two-point drop for the Conservatives. Mm. Labour... Um, staying still. Um, Comrades are back and they have a poll with uh, Labour on 41, Conservatives on 40. I believe that's their first uh, poll since the general election. So um, no no change figures, if you like, there, but uh, similar to what other people are showing. 
And the most recent YouGov that I've found, uh, 9th and 10th of April, um, Conservatives 40 minus 2, Labour 40 uh, minus 1, and um, Salvation, um, which are probably the biggest shifts, but then they, uh, probably the biggest gap between polls other than Comrades, maybe. Um, they had Conservatives plus 3 on 40, Labour minus 4 on 40. Um, so they were the ones that had Labour seven points ahead before a flurry of sort of pr- more... Um, positive polls for the Conservatives there. So, yeah, very much 40 and 40. I mean, Matt, I mean, if that was repeated at a general election, though, that's if it's going to be good news for anyone, that's good news for Labour, isn't it? That's a swing towards Labour. Yeah, it's a swing towards Labour, and obviously it doesn't take a big uh, swing for the parliamentary arithmetic to basically um, put the Conservatives out. Now, obviously, there are other things to think about, like, say, uh, tactical voting, how things might play out in, in Scotland, for example, and and and. and and, and so on. But essentially, yes, those numbers would put Jeremy Corbyn in number 10. So looking at polling in more, the detail behind some of this polling, because I mean, one of the things I'm, I always insist upon is trying to look beyond the headline figures, because sometimes we can learn more from the supplementary questions than we can from the headline voting attention, which, let's be honest, to be generous, has had a chequered history in recent general elections. So one of the things I've noticed, Adam, is that it does seem like Theresa May's poll ratings have, have sort of improved. Jerry Corbyn's seems to have suffered. Um, but there seems to be a disconnect between what that what's happening there and what's happening in the headline numbers. I mean, what would you make of that? Yeah, in, in a way, it's almost kind of reminiscent of sort of early 2015, late 2014, when you had both parties being tied, but a bit of a gap between preferred prime minister or how each leader was doing individually. So we start to see <clears throat> not only on the um, preferred prime minister question, Theresa May opening up quite a bit of a lead there compared to, especially the period late last year when it was very much tied, um, and also the the gap in approval ratings where... If you look at the net rating for each of the two leaders, so approve the percentage approving minus the percentage disapproving, um, for quite a long period of time after the general election, Theresa May's net ratings were worse than Jeremy Corbyn's, and now she's overtaken him again. So we seem to be returning to that kind of, well, I say status quo, we seem to return to that kind of, of setup there. But what's interesting, again, is the lack of an impact on overall voting intent numbers. Now, maybe that means that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's approval ratings are holding Labour back from doing even better, or maybe it's a a situation like we had, like I said, before 2015, whereby one of those two numbers is incorrect and we're not sure which one. Um, But equally, there's the fact that we had a general election last year and there wasn't one scheduled until 2022. So the... And Theresa May, by all accounts, isn't going to be the leader of the Conservative Party anyway. Precisely, At least that's the conventional wisdom, so probably wrong. (laughs) Yeah, so so the actual... So the, the amount of attention that the public is probably paying to politics at the moment... I'd say the actual VI numbers are probably influenced far more by things like waiting to pass votes and things like that than they are to actual you know, changes in perception among the public. On that note, I mean, Adam mentioned earlier about issues. Let's, let's look at some of the issues that are in the news um, and, and what the public think about them. The big news feels this week, when we come to Syria, but the, the Windrush uh, scandal um, it, it has dominated the papers the last couple of days, and understandably so. There isn't loads of polling out on it at the moment, although I suspect that will change in the coming days. So I wanted to touch on some numbers that I thought were important. Uh, I believe these were from YouGov um, on this. Now, I have to read out the question again because it's, it's quite long-winded. So this question said, Until 1962, all citizens of the Commonwealth countries had the right to come and live in Britain. Many Commonwealth citizens who came here at the time did not have paperwork proving when they came and have faced legal difficulties with their, with their immigration status in recent years. In principle, do you think Commonwealth citizens who came to Britain many decades ago before immigration rules were tightened should or should not have the right to stay? 
And then overall, uh, 78% of the public say they should have the right to stay, 9% say they should not, and 13% um, don't have an opinion. And what struck me about these numbers, as I guess the headline figures kind of imply, because it's 78%, is there's almost you know, cross-party lines, quite consistent um, at least with the major parties, quite a consistent uh, sort of agreement that, yes, these people um, should be able to stay. So, I mean, I guess it feels like, uh, Adam, that the Prime Minister's going to have a very difficult week with this because public opinion is very much in favour of the Windrush generation. Yeah, and, and of course, the, the thing to point out with this is that the reason why this is all, well, the, the effect of the, the hostile environment um, sort of policy and, and the reason why this is coming to light now um, kind of belie the fact that generally restrictions on immigration are very popular and consistently have been. But when you ask about specific instances, and, and the other example here is uh, when we talk about whether international students should be counted towards the net immigration target. When you ask the public about specific groups of people, they're very, you know, they're much more nuanced than you would expect. They're much more positive and and uh, much more accepting. But when you ask about things in the abstract, there's a general kind of anti-immigration, no cut the numbers down uh, mood. So. Um, this is again kind of an interesting example. I mean, this is this is surely fairly kind of clear cut. Like there, there is a <laughs> not. I should say the government have, have said that you know they've been very apologetic and you know, yeah. they acknowledge there's a problem. I mean, how they're going to fix it is another question, of course. Yeah, and and and, and they're not you know sort of battening down the hatches and trying to sort of write it out. They are trying to do something about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if I could design a, a situation in a polling question to get a really sort of one-sided answer. I'm not saying anything about the question, I'm talking about the situation more generally. If I could design something to get a sort of overwhelming acceptance, it would be something like this. You've got mm. uh, the mixture of um, the sort of, you know, the pro-immigration uh, liberal side of the country um, who yeah, are naturally going to support the right of uh, people to stay here. And then you've got the kind of the traditional kind of, you know, the Commonwealth connection and even mention of, you know, a year in the past, I guess, um, which is going to bring on, um, you know, more sort of like Tory traditionalists. So it's the kind of issue which unites those two really sort of disparate sides of the country in, in, in one view. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting to think about, uh, obviously, this week also being the 50th, 50th anniversary of um, Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, which was uh, around the time that many of these people would have come to the UK. And certainly the way the, the, the state of public opinion at the time about the, the immigration at the time is obviously um, very different to how people are asking about the same set of um, migrations now. Obviously, the context is very different because they've been here for, for, for so much longer. But uh, yes, as you said, I mean, across party lines, across demographics and, and, and so on, it's very, very um, consistent support. You can talk about, uh, as Adam alluded to, the question wording, but with a result that's as clear-cut as this... Mm. It would have to be, and I don't think it is, it would have to have been a very mm. sort of um, leading question to produce. Oh, yeah, no, sorry, like just that. to clarify that. I wasn't saying there's anything wrong with the question wording. No, no, I was yeah, talking yeah, about the no. situation more generally. Just on Matt's point earlier, actually, it, it is interesting that if you look at the prospects of this, so 78% of the public more generally saying, uh, you know, the Windrush uh, migrants should have the right to stay, that's 82% of Labour voters, 81% of Tory voters, 93% of Lib Dems, 85% of, of SNP voters, uh, meaning you know, 69% of UK voters. So it is fairly universal. There isn't really a group here which is lobbying hard for the deportation of people, um, you know, who've lived here 50 years. Well, you raised homeless. an interesting point earlier, though, Adam, which I want to come back to, which is that, you know, it's, it's all very well saying people want immigration cut, but it's difficult for policymakers, isn't it, to work out how to sort of decipher all these sort of almost conflicting messages. I, I remember um, Nick Robertson did a really interesting um, 
uh, sort of piece, Vox Pop piece, didn't he, where he went round, I can't remember where it was, but he went round a town and asked people who they didn't want to come in and they couldn't answer couldn't answer the question, although it felt a little bit unfair because I think that um, you know, they seem to think it was about numbers, but they can't articulate what those numbers are, can they? So, I mean, this comes to the EU Brexit negotiations, doesn't it? I mean, ultimately, the government's got to find a way of negotiating something that lowers numbers but is seen as fair, which feels like it's going to be a, a contradiction there somewhere. And it's, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the the ongoing sort of I think it's Ipsos the ongoing um, sort of perception gap um, poll where they ask people what percentage of the uh, UK population do you think was born abroad and then compare it to the actual figure and the figures are always you know grossly inflated you know what what percentage of the population do you think um, uh, Muslims make up or what percentage of the population do you think uh, yeah what do you think the rate of you know like like teenage pregnancy is or what do you think mm. the crime rates are and it's always grossly grossly distorted and I think that one of the common uh, things is that um, the public generally think that the percentage of the population that was born outside the UK is like 30% but the actual figure is about 30 mm. so it's it's one of those things where the, this like gap of information um, and it makes debate about immigration extremely difficult because at no point yeah, at some point does you know a politician say yeah, you, the the obsession with numbers may be counterproductive in this way. Maybe we should focus on individual groups. And when we talk about things like an Australian-style point system, um, whereby you know there is you know there, there is, although there is control of numbers, it's you know down to the points that maybe actually is less control over um, the overall numbers. But it's it's one of those things that tests well, and therefore it becomes part of the debate. Listen, there was another interesting poll I wanted to bring up, which is kind of related to this, not exactly the same, um, by British Future with Servation, I think it was, which asked how you would feel if the following positions were filled by someone of a different race to you. So we're moving away from immigration specifically here, but in the wake of the Enoch Powell anniversary of the Enoch Powell speech, we're looking at attitudes to, to racism. And of course, <laughs> you can't ask people, well, you can try, are you racist, can you? I mean, and I suppose racism is... a I don't know if this is the right way of putting it, but it's a spectrum as much as it is either or as well. I mean, people have degrees of uh, extre- extremities there, maybe. I think asking someone directly, are you a racist, is a good way of we- of identifying the people who are not only, you know, who are quite proud of it and it's, uh, <laughs> and it's kind of core to their identity that they're willing to tell people about it. But yeah. yeah, you're right. Generally, it's not a good way of identifying who actually has those feelings. So there was this question, as I say, how, how comfortable or uncomfortable would you be if uh, the following positions were filled by someone of a different race? So we'll go through some of these. So the Prime Minister, 79% comfortable, 21% uncomfortable. So... Uh, one in five saying they're uncomfortable with the Prime Minister being of a different race uh, to, to the, themselves. And there's a whole host of other things, but what seems to be interesting is that there are, there's nothing's universal, but there are certain uh, positions that people are almost universally comfortable with. So local business owner, 93%, police officer, 92% comfortable, doctor or nurse, 92% comfortable, your child's school teacher, 90% comfortable, 10% uncomfortable. But let's look at some of the ones that people are most uncomfortable with. Um, your boyfriend, uh, the boyfriend, girlfriend of one of your children, 19% uncomfortable with that person being from a different race, um, 19% uh, be uncomfortable with the husband or wife of one of your children. So a similar um, similar kind of picture there. Your local MP, 13% uncomfortable. I mean, Matt, I read these numbers and, okay, yeah, yeah, four out of five, pretty much comfortable with anything in inverted commas. But still, it still shows we've got some way to go, haven't we, as a society? Yes, it does. Um, I mean, I, it would be interesting to see if there's any kind of, uh, I suspect not for that particular question, but if you look over time, I mean, I'm sure you, you can see a, a, a great degree of progress but uh, I mean as you two were saying there's kind of this 
it's it's sort of a uh, not shyness, but cognitive dissonance essentially between um, saying people, people. I mean, people would not say they're racist. I think a lot because a lot of people would not consider themselves racist. But when you ask questions that are, you know, things like this are pretty much the definition of racism, you get quite different. And you get, I mean, as you see there, you get different answers between um, different types of, uh, you know, people positions that you're asking about. So it is a very interesting. Uh, way of um, teasing out these views, but uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of um, what it says about society, I mean, you can kind of look at the level, you can look at the change over time, and sort of one looks rather nicer than the other, more positive than the other. Yeah, I mean, let's move on. I mean, the big the big news of the weekend and ongoing, and I suspect it you know, obviously isn't going away. It relates to Syria. Um, lots of polling out about this. Obviously, uh, parliamentary debates this week on on the subject. And uh, you know, lots of fervid arguments online and offline about this. So we have the latest in the Polling Matters Opinion series of polls where we're looking at this question. Now, this poll was in the field over the weekend, so the, the strikes were kind of hap- happening during the poll being in the field. So some of these numbers um, will have to be put in that context, essentially, because we asked about hypothetical future support of something that then subsequently happened. Um, but there are still, nonetheless some numbers that I think are important to look at. So we look at support and opposition to the airstrikes. We look at reasons for that support and opposition, which I don't think is something that we've uh, seen elsewhere. And then we look at whether or not people believe the Russian accusation that Britain was actually behind staging the chemical attack in Duma. Um, And some quite startling numbers there, which we'll come to momentarily. But first, let's deal with the support versus opposition of, of airstrikes. So we asked, the UK government has said it is highly likely that the Syrian government carried out the recent chemical weapons attack that killed up to 75 people in Syria. The use of chemical weapons is banned by international law. In response, some proposed military action to punish the Syrian government for using chemical weapons on civilians. Others have said we need more evidence of who was to blame and military action could make things worse. So we've tried to be as balanced as possible there. I guess the listener can judge whether we have been or not. And then the respondent was given four options. Military military action should go ahead and the UK should be part of it. 26% agreed with that. Military action should go ahead, but the UK should not be a part of it. Bit of a cop out. 16% um, said that. Um, So 42% supported military action one way or another. Military action should not go ahead. 36% opposing military action. 22% said they don't know. I mean, Adam, I'll come to you on this. The public do seem divided. And although different pollsters have different numbers on this issue, the one thing they do seem to agree on, at least, is that there there is divided opinions here. Yeah, I think the only reasonable interpretation of any of the numbers coming out from ourselves and various other pollsters is that there isn't really much of a consensus here. So there's, in some polls, a fairly even divide between uh, was this right or was this wrong? Do you support it? Do you oppose it? Um, so our one, we tried at least to, um, to to introduce the idea that, look, the Americans are going to do this anyway. So really, does the involvement, is, is the involvement of, of British forces, you know, symbolic or is it useful is it is it needed or not um so actually what's interesting is when we ask uh, the people who opposed um who, so people who said that either military action should not go ahead or it should go ahead and, and the uk shouldn't be part of it um 22 of them said um yeah look the, the us is going to get involved anyway so it doesn't really make much difference whether the uk does or not mm-hmm. um what's also interesting you've got quite a strong partisan divide as you probably expect so um 47 of uh, conservative voters saying uh, military action should go ahead, UK should be part of it. 
Um, 49% of Labour voters say military action should not go ahead at all. Um, they've got obviously minorities there, so you have 21% of Tories saying there should be no military action and 15% of Labour voters saying it should happen and, and Britain should be part of it. Um, but what's also interesting among the various reasons, so we asked people who did support military action um, why they think it should happen. Um, the top reason was uh, we have a moral duty to intervene to protect civilians from chemical weapons attacks. Um, so that's 65%. Uh, 60% saying to discourage other governments from using chemical weapons, um, 58% to punish a Syrian government for uh, using chemical weapons and enforce international law. So what I think is interesting there is that the top reason, um, to an extent, we moral decisions. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we we kind of conflate a couple of things there because obviously you've you've got there's there's the moral issue of you know protecting civilians who are under attack and 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 all that. And then there is the international, you know, the norm and international relations of chemical weapons being prohibited, and the fact that this is well. So, so Assad did this last year, and and the US bombed some airfields, and then he's done it again, and so the deterrent effect of that seems to have been quite minimal. Um, so the whole, given that the yeah, that the main justification, I mean, this is partly my sort of personal view, is that. The mo- the strongest justification for any kind of involvement in Syria comes from the fact that it was chemical weapons rather than bowel bombs or any of the other horrible things that um, the Assad government is doing. Um, so it's interesting that um, while that is up there, it's not the top reason necessarily. I thought looking at some of the reasons against were, were also um, interesting. And again, we haven't seen this anywhere else. So the top reason for... Um, opposing military action related to Syria was it will lead uh, to the UK getting drawn into another conflict in the Middle East. 55% of those that oppose said that. And uh, 53%, so almost the same, said after wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we should be cautious about military action abroad. So Matt, it does feel like uh, the legacy of Iraq really is clouding people's I'm not saying in a positive or negative way or rightly or wrongly, but it's clearly on people's minds when they're making judgments about military action abroad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, things are, are seen through the, the prism of uh, of that. And, um, it, I mean, it does certainly suggest, I mean, certainly thinking about um, pre-Iraq when these sorts of things were polled, I mean, generally you tended to get reasonably, you know, certainly stronger support for this sort of thing than you did now, I mean, from just thinking back from memory. And, and of course, Iraq itself at the time before it happened was polling quite strongly with the majority in favour of it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And interesting, I mean, OK, we're getting on to sort of false recall a bit. I think I can't remember who it was asked people, did they, you know, how do they feel about Iraq at the time? And then compared yeah. it to how people actually felt at the time. And it was it was yeah. it was pretty different. But I, mean, I think the, with this, the interesting thing is that we've had a number of different polls with a number of different question wordings from a number of different Pollsters. So when we start seeing all of these, um, I mean, obviously you can draw the big picture conclusion that the country is to some extent divided, but how that division actually splits out, you're getting some very different numbers. So the question, of course, is, is it question wording? Is it uh, methodological differences elsewhere between pollsters or have people generally changed their minds? And it does tend to seem, it does seem looking through all of the noise um, I think YouGov had a. Um, they had to change the question wording slightly because one was hypothetical and one was after the fact. But it did look as though the, it it does look as though the airstrikes actually taking place uh, did have an effect in pushing people to be more um, supportive of them. 
yeah, there might be it might be a feeling of like, well, we're in it now, so I guess we better. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we've done it now, yeah. so it's okay. <laughs> Although, I mean, there was a point actually made by um, uh, on Twitter by um, Patrick O'Flynn who pointed out that. Um, I mean, beforehand, some people may well have been worried about some of the things that might go wrong, and after the fact, those things haven't gone wrong. It looks like there weren't any civilian, civilian casualties and, 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 and so on. And, and so we're not people, at war with Russia yet. And we're not at war with Russia yet. So, um, you know, people might people's opinions might change because of that. Well, that might, I must say, the, the war with Russia yet point is not an insignificant... <laughs> that isn't an insignificant factor in people opposed... Oh, this um, may age badly. The, 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 yeah, we'll see where we are tomorrow morning. Um, the, the, part one of the, um, the reasons for opposing military action in our poll was it might lead to conflict with Russia, and uh, 43% of those um, that sort of opposed uh, sort of um, military action against Syria... Gave that reason, so it's not, it's on people's minds. There's a couple of little nuggets I wanted to pull out of Labour voters. Um, thirty percent of Labour voters say violence is always wrong. I always oppose war, which um, you know, may may be a reflection of uh, the new kind of Labour voter uh, part of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's um, coalition. It's not thirty percent of Labour voters. We should say it's thirty percent of Labour voters that opposed military action. So I don't want to create the impression that one in three Labour voters are one hundred percent anti-war in all circumstances. Um, that's at least not what these numbers say. There's also uh, one in four, or 23%, just shy of one in four, of those Labour voters opposing military action said that uh, the UK shouldn't be on the same side as Donald Trump. That's versus 16% of the overall population that uh, opposed um, opposed military action. So, you know, I guess that people see things through the prism of the um, US president too. The final question, and I think we saved the best to last, I think, the most controversial um, was about this. I think it was. I don't think it was Lavrov or who it was, but one of the someone in the Russian military or Russian government said that um, the UK had staged the uh, chemical attacks in Duma. So we asked about that because it happened just as we were putting this poll into field. So we thought we'd, we'd get what people thought about that. So the Russian military. It's a question read. The Russian military has said that the chemical attack in Syria was staged and directed by Britain. Do you think this is true or false? So what we've got here is ten percent. One in ten said that that was true. Adam, what do we make of those numbers? Obviously, an overwhelming minority, but still, that's a, a chunky number, isn't it? Yeah, it's and and, and we're going to look really stupid for mocking it now when it comes out as all being true in, in the wash. But um, what's what's also interesting again, if you look at the um, the the like partisan crosswakes, so you've got ten percent overall saying that uh, yeah they think that's true and this this was based on the scale so we went from it's definitely true probably true uh, probably not true definitely not true so we're, we're putting together people who said yeah it's probably true with people who said yes this definitely happened I'm certain of it um so which was much have, less we should say yeah yeah <laughs> which um so we have ten percent saying uh, this is true definitely true or probably true and that goes up to fifteen percent among labor voters which I thought was interesting um drops down to um six percent among conservative voters um and it's it's probably just a function of age but it's it's also interesting that uh, 18 to 34 year olds, 16% of them think that it's, it's true or probably true mm. um, versus only 4% of those aged 55 plus. Although, like I said, probably a function of age given the age skew in, in voting intention. I mean, I, I wouldn't dismiss these numbers. I mean, there'll be people that um, laugh about them or, or think, well, it's only one in 10, it's a poll. How, can much, how much can we read from that? And I suppose we don't know what the trend of these sorts of things is doing over time. That might be something we look at in future podcasts. But at the same time, lots of information flying around on social media these days, lots of talk about fake news and that sort of thing, isn't there? And again, you know, let's, assuming it is fake, of course, which I, which I do, um, 
you know, Matt, I mean, this, this maybe this speaks a little bit to part of the news climate that we're in, you know, people more cynical maybe about what, what they're being told. Yeah, I think there's certainly, it's, it's very interesting um, to study this, it's certainly going to be interesting uh, assuming we're all still here to look back in the future and <laughs> study this this point in history. This is a grim um, episode of the podcast. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's getting a bit dark. It, it is indeed. Um, there's but, so I guess the point here is, and I know, I know we don't like to deal in hunches yeah. too much on this podcast, but do yeah. we think that that one in ten is something that you'd always see, or do we think that's? I mean, it doesn't have to be. I, I've got the sense that it's probably if you'd asked this question. 30 years ago, or okay, maybe not during the actual Cold War, but certainly 20 years ago, I mean, you would probably have got a lower number. That would be my hunch. I think what I, annoyingly, I don't have actual numbers to back this up, so I'm going to rely on hazy memory. But when it, it, it's it's higher than you'd think, if, well, if we talk about common kind of bits of conventional wisdom and, and conspiracy theories and stuff like that so stuff like you know do you think that prince philip was involved in you know princess anna dying that kind of stuff yeah um stuff that you know normal sensible people dismiss as being a bit batty um you will get it will be higher than you think if you ask it in a polling question do you think this is in any way true especially if you put a scale on it do you think this is definitely true definitely not true you will get a, a higher number than you think saying yeah i think that might be true um, so how this compares to that is it's probably about what we would kind of expect. Um, so there may be an element of um, yeah, source bias because we are saying it's the Russian military saying this, you know, not you know, historically the most neutral source. Um, and also it is following two, three other questions about the Syria situation and, and which are you know, quite sort of seriously minded. Mm. Um, but yeah, more generally, it's, you've given me an idea for a tracking series that we should really start doing. Um, things like, do, you to think, help. do you think the moon landing was faked and that and that kind of stuff? That that segment of the population does exist, and like I said, it's always it's, it's a little bit higher than you would normally expect. Th- yeah. That's that's the the thing that I was um, that had come into my mind. There's always been a certain um, section who are, are quite open to believing conspiracy theories, yeah. whether it's about this or about the moon landing or about you know. Just look at Piers Corbyn's Twitter feed. So uh, I guess the, I guess the point we're saying is it would be easy to run away with these numbers and think, oh wow, this is just a real God, isn't this terrible? Isn't this a reflection of uh, the crazy world we live in? But actually, there is. I guess what you both seem to be saying is that there is this constituency out there that believes this sort of thing, and and, yeah. and this is a reflection of that. Maybe let's move on again, um, Matt. As pollsters are in the room, um, we were all looking with um, waiting with bated breath for the Lord's report on political polling. Um, how about you take the listeners through some of the headlines of that? Sure. So this was out on Tuesday, wasn't it? I think this was out. Yes, overnight. Monday what do you explain a bit about what the purpose of this was actually as well? Because some some listeners won't necessarily know what this was all about. Yeah. So this was convened by the House of Lords uh, following last year's general election, and their uh, your justification is you know following that election result, the EU referendum, the twenty fifteen election. Uh, there's been a spectacular loss of confidence in uh, polling in general, voting intention polling in particular, and they basically wanted to um, investigate: is it getting worse? You know, why is it being reported? And there's, there's, there's they the, the same committee was also looking at things to do with digital media and and and, and other things, which is sort of outside of the scope of this. But their their the key focus was on polling, and so they spent months interviewing various people from uh, practitioners, academics, uh, media figures and and and, uh, and others. Um, and and so what they've come up with, I mean, to to summarise, though they they're calling for a tighter oversight of the polling industry, which essentially means a, a beefed up 
role for the British Polling Council. And that would be on its own, but also uh, particularly during campaign periods, actually in coordination with the MRS, the Electoral Commission, media regulators, uh, and so on. Um, and it does advocate formal public reviews after each election and uh, referendum of polling performance, but it doesn't call for statutory regulation or blackouts. Um, so, I mean, and, and quite tellingly, the first in their, their press release, the first sentence actually read, and I quote, the polling industry needs to get its house in order, otherwise the case for banning polling in the run-up to elections one we for now reject will become stronger, end quote. So, uh, I mean, the tone is actually quite punchy, mm-hmm. in a way, on mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and certainly some of the, the details of what they've... Uh, so they've made a, a load of recommendations about transparency of funding and... Well, let's, let's come to some of those in a moment, but I mean, let's talk about that, the, the potential for blackouts yeah. and the punchiness first. I mean, Adam, I want to get your, your opinions on this. I mean, for me, I feel that that's... I mean, people might not expect me to say this, but I think that's kind of fair enough, isn't it? I mean, okay, we might have doubts about whether a blackout is enforceable, what the unintended consequences Mm. of that might be. But surely, you know, if this keeps happening and we keep having this almost lottery over which pollster gets things right at an election, that's only to be expected, isn't it? Yeah, I I think, like, a a general sort of loss loss of confidence in, like, the precise accuracy of polls is understandable. I mean, I'll... Make my usual not all pollsters uh, point about uh, the the EU referendum, but I mean we we had our issues with the, the twenty seventeen election, twenty fifteen election, um, and I mean there's the more general point which I don't want to play the world's smallest violin here, but polling is getting harder. You're having you know uh, lower response rates and also a greater degree of volatility in the electorate. But anyway, um, I think the the case for not having any kind of barometer of public opinion as part of an election campaign is one of those things where you'd almost have to test it because the arguments for and against are both quite compelling. Um, I think it's notable that, bowing to practicality, some of those countries where there there are um, formal bans on publication of opinion polls um, have shrunk the size of that period, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, although, saying that, I think it's still something like 16 out of 27, 28 EU countries do have some form of ban in place. Um, so it's it's understandable, but but equally the the desire to sort of lay lay all of the blame of, of for this at the door of pollsters is slightly sort of misallocated. Mm. In that there is, there is a significant amount of like you know media role in this as well. And the the inquiry touches on that, doesn't it, Matt? Yeah, I mean on on the the black I think I've I've made my uh, thoughts on that pretty clear in my my briefings. I mean, the, not only is it as you suggest uh, unworkable, but obviously this. This 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 test of um, what happens if you don't have polls. We have had tests at by elections recently because we don't have polls. And if you think back to um, the um, Old and Western Royton by election, where where all of the you know all of the spin, all of the betting, all, everyone's saying, well, the reception on the doorstep. Everyone's saying, oh, it's neck and neck. Labour people were saying, seriously, we're in trouble. They end up increasing the majority to forty points. <laughs> Um, and, and that's not, I mean, okay, that may be a slightly extreme example, but um, apart from being unworkable, y- you've got th- this potential... Is it unworkable? I mean, surely you just say the week before, no polls. Well, yeah, but what about the foreign media? What about social media? Um, there's no way of stopping that. So... And, and, and from, a, from the point of view of a, of a polling company, for us, it's the trade-off between 
is the sort of increase in business that we would get from clients commissioning private polls, where we could even, you know, just syndicate it, just do the same bit of research and then sell it off to 10, 20 different clients um, who then sort of distribute it internally, but it's not mm. quote unquote published. And someone um, leaks it. Yeah, which, which will inevitably get leaked at some point. Um, is that worth the, you know, the amount of sort of free-ish publicity that we get from election time anyway? So there's... There's, yeah, it's, it's a bit sort of swings and roundabouts from our perspective, although, you know, obviously it takes some of the fun out of it for, for those of us in yeah. the team. I mean, Matt, does the, uh, does the inquiry talk a bit about the, the media yeah, and how I mean, polls are used? Yeah, I mean, I, I do have to say that obviously the, the polling industry has had um, post-2015, uh, as was the case post-1992 and 1970, a very open, a very candid... Uh, self-reflection as it were the media reporting uh, if you look back at um, recent events and I mean 2015 in particular where there was a a very uh, conspicuous uh, obsession almost with the outcome and not really talking about the substance of you know what's in the manifestos who advocates what and 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 getting preoccupied with the um, the result and often also you know also reporting specific polls badly and getting um and, and and focusing too much on the the exception rather than the rule um the report it, it, it's interesting because the general sense i get is that it does properly acknowledge those things but then it kind of seems to put the blame almost on them and not put the blame perhaps too strongly but to um, make suggestions about how the polling industry needs to change when in fact in, in, in a number of cases the, the issues here are not so much the polls themselves but the way that they're being communicated to the public. So in, in particular I quite like the idea of, and this came up in, in the, the Sturgis review after 2015, of us publishing sort of confidence intervals. So here's, yeah, based on a standard statistical sort of margin of error, this is what you think a 95% confidence interval um, the actual Labour number, the actual Conservative number is between this range and then mm. somebody looking at all of those would be able to see that actually in a in a series of like four or five polls published, if those numbers are all within that range, then really it hasn't changed much. But the problem is, obviously, try convincing you know, a journalist to go with a confidence interval. And we work with you know, journalists who are really... You know, well, if you look at the YouGov and... model that turned out to be very, very good, obviously, yeah. that had very wide confidence mm. intervals, mm. and uh, you know they pick the you pick the middle uh, the middle yeah. number, don't you? You need a number that you're going to yeah. report, and you yeah. pick the middle one, and then we're back to where we were. And the other thing to, to bear in mind is that, um, well, firstly, how how do you calculate those confidence intervals? Do you use theoretical margin of error, which we all know is nonsense? Do we use empirical? Uh, margin of error which of course then you you can have a debate about how you calculate that but the other thing of course to think about with confidence intervals is that those have their own potential issues with communication too because you i most of the people listening to this might well understand that we're talking about probability distributions and you know 95 percent of the time or whatever the percentage is it'll be within that range but it, it, you can certainly see the potential at least for that to be presented in a way such that this is the absolute range, it cannot possibly be exactly, outside yeah, of that, it, and that mm, itself is a risk. So it's even more certain than just going with one number when people intuitively have an idea, oh, it could be a couple either side. This final, final question for each of you, is we're running out of time. Um, I don't think we're going to get to the local elections this week. But um, 
when we're thinking of the future of polling then and, and how people should be using some of these numbers, I mean, what would, what would your respective advice be to either just the average person reading the news uh, or looking at Twitter, trying to make sense of this all, you know, other than listening to polling matters, which I think is, which is just a given, I think you should do that. What, what Adam, would you say to people that how, how, best to read, how best to read polls? So the thing that I, I always say when, when confronted with this kind of thing is like polls should not be your only source of information, that you should be... I, I remember reading lots and lots of articles after the 2015 election in particular with lots of journalists saying that, oh, well, the polls are telling me one thing, but my, my instincts and all the other information I was getting was, was telling me another, and, and, you know, and I believe the polls. And I, well, no, you should be taking those two things. Those, that is your sum of information, is that you're getting contradictory things. Uh, you know, that, that was... That should give you a giveaway. That's that's one of the ways that we put a bit of scepticism about and, and, and are able to be able to uh, sort of get an idea in advance of whether or not um, you know, the, the polls are going to end up being right or wrong or something like that. Mm. So you should be looking at... I mean, this was always the... <laughs> this was the, the, the downside of both the 2015 and 17 election was the advice beforehand was always... Don't just look at one number. Take the average of the lot. You know, look at look at what the totality of, of you know polls are saying, and then make a judgment call according to that. And then, of course, that gave us the wrong result both times in a row. But um, in general, the principle still stands, which is that you should be looking at multiple sources of information. You should be taking lots in and forming a judgment based on that. Because mm. nobody in nobody in the polling industry is trying to to get that wrong. We are still trying to come up with the most accurate reflection of public opinion that we can get. But I think some some like acknowledgement that it's, it shouldn't be the whole of your information. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, I mean, Matt, fi- final word to you. I suppose there's there's two two things immediately kind of come to mind, and, and your your recent poll might um, shed some light on this. I mean, one is you know what Adam said about how, how we use different sources of information. I, I know you've done that in some of your models, um, but also in mean, polling itself is going to have to keep changing as well. Yeah. I mean. Uh, as, as research has shown, polling hasn't actually become less accurate in absolute terms over time. But the only reason that that's the case is that innovation has been continuous. And to, to keep up with the, the increasingly um, difficult environment for, to do polling in, um, polling has had to change and, and polling is changing. And what I've been trying to do with this, um, the polling that I've been doing with number crunch politics is actually to look at where you're drawing a sample from, try and find ways to reach these harder-to-reach groups. And so, essentially, the, the the method is partly conventionally drawing polls from online sample, online panels, although carefully selected panels, um, to try to find the ones that are not normally used for political polling, because obviously you don't want a, a panel full of activists. And then also using uh, non-panel, so river sampling techniques, so essentially things like, for example, intercepting people on websites that are not about politics and, and mm. giving them surveys. So this is getting the non-voters, the non-engaged types. Yeah, the, the sorts of people who would not join a panel. Mm. Um, and it, it, it's quite clear that those um, sorts of people are different. I mean, it's, it's not perfect for all demographics, but that combined with panels seems to work um, reasonably well and certainly the initial results are promising I mean without um, before even applying the, the demographic weight we asked um, how they voted in the 2017 election we got a two point Tory lead we asked about the referendum we got 52-48 mm. um, and the turnout profile no youth quite matched the BES so um, while I'm I mean 
I'm I can understand if others are skeptical. I'm skeptical. You know, I apply the same skepticism that I'd expect others mm. to apply. But certainly at this stage, it does seem as though um, we're making some progress on on sampling and getting a um, a sample that, uh, based on the the um, pretty much all the data points available, looks quite like the the BES numbers. So um, on that sense, it's it um, seems to be um, seems quite promising. But yeah, I mean, the industry's got to keep evolving. There are other people coming in um, to it and, and trying lots of different things. And I'm, I'm sure you'll be speaking to some of them over the you know over the coming uh, months. But yes, I mean, the industry is at an interesting and important point in its history. Uh, but I think the future looks bright. So I guess keep a healthy dose of scepticism and keep listening to Polling Matters seems to be the conclusion. And that's all we've got time for for this week's Polling Matters uh, politicalbetting.com podcast. Didn't get to local elections this week, but we will do uh, in the coming weeks as we um, look ahead to May and and, uh, people going to the polls there. Um, But for now, thank you to my guests, Adam Drummond and Matt Singh, and thank you once again, uh, dear listener, for listening. If you can see your way to giving us a share on Twitter or Facebook or or LinkedIn or anything uh, that you use, tell a friend about us. Um, give us a like or on our Facebook page or a positive rating on iTunes or a nice uh, comment. We're nice people and it helps get our name out there. So uh, anything you can do to help would be very much appreciated. But for now, thanks for listening and enjoy the sunshine. <laughs>